On the Empire Podcast this week, Sunshine on Leith director and national treasurer Dexter Fletcher drops in for a chat. Matthew Fox comes to talk about Emperor and being cut out of World War Z. We review Blue Jasmine, Runner Runner and Prisoners. And there's the usual movie news and nonsense you've come to expect from the only movie podcast that would write something witty for this bit, but Chris was supposed to do it and he didn't. Hello, Pod. I'm not Chris Hewitt. I'm Helen O'Hara, and welcome to the Empire Podcast. Uh, Chris is sadly busy today, trying frantically to do about six months' worth of work before he goes on a two-week holiday. So I'm stepping up. Uh, As ever, I'm joined by three of my beloved colleagues. First up, we have a man who came 436th in a Colin Farrell lookalike competition. It's Dan Jolin. Hello, Dan. Strength and honour, Helen. (laughs) Strength and honour. That's what did it. Uh, Next, we have a man who spent yesterday playing with puppies, and I'm assured that is not a euphemism unless it also is that's Ali Plum this is a video of puppy squeaking I went to the National Breeding Centre for guide dog puppies uh, in Lovington Spa and it was one of the cutest things I've ever experienced in my life I was surrounded by a bundle of about six puppies just crawling over me going <laughs> <laughs> they, so, they sounded a bit upset by it they were upset because I wasn't with them and they, oh. they wanted to come and hug me but they, they had eaten their food and they had to go outside did you suckle them no. Suckle is today's Dan Jolin bingo starter word. <laughs> Congratulations on that. Last but not least is our art house guru, a man who spent the weekend watching the Apu trilogy and next week is planning the Chief Wiggum quadrilogy with Phil DeSemlin. Hello. Hi. <laughs> Thanks for that. Do you know of The Simpsons? Yes, I'm aware of The Simpsons. Their oeuvre. Yeah. <laughs> they, they come from a country called America. America. Is that right? Yeah. I shall be yeah. sure to look it into it. It has quite a large film industry in America. Does it really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's start with your questions, which you've lovingly sent in this week. First up, at Ross T. Miller asks, what do you think is the best piece of franchise reboot casting? For me, it's Zachary Quinto as Spock. Uh, good choice, Ross. What do we think of this one? Uh, I really hate to be blindingly obvious, but Heath Ledger's Joker... That's a pretty Maybe. good piece of. I, I think generally the Christopher Walken or Christopher Nolan. Batman's. Yeah, generally very good casting. Generally very. But, but I but, prefer the Christopher Walken Batman. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, of course he was in Batman Returns. He was. There's a positive side to it. Obviously, it is a fantastic performance and and a fantastically written reinterpretation of that character. I love the kind of the grungifying of him. The idea of of you know making completely underground and out there and outside society uh, rather than the sort of you know dapper clown mm. that we've seen before there's a negative side to it cause I, I actually genuinely don't like Jack Nicholson's Joker really what? yeah I don't mm. I think partly it's the problem with the script of the first Batman film which makes him a gangster in his previous life and shows his origin story which is just completely wrong obviously I just don't like the idea that um, I, I mean I am obviously you know uh, an acolyte of, of Alan Moore's The Killing Joke uh, mm. I, I like the idea that the Joker was something before that was that was normal that was you know that there was an extreme event that made him what he is and also I just think it was just Jack doing his Jack thing Maybe I, I honestly I think that the Tim Burton Batman gets a bad rap these days since Batman Begins <laughs> onwards. Honestly, I feel like everybody was really happy with the Tim Burton I Batman. I never was. Honestly, okay. honestly, honestly. Well, you see that that strikes me as being like one of the people who swears that they didn't like the Ewoks even when they were five, which I also don't no, believe. No, no, I like the Ewoks, especially the one when that one died and the other one's going Ooh, over oh, his body. Yeah, that was, that was really upsetting. Suckling, eh? Yeah. <laughs> to be fair, you know, what other film franchise do you see a man? driving an all-terrain duck. I mean, that's 
that's a good thing in exactly. cinema, right? I hated Batman Returns. I love Batman Returns. The duck Returns. extended out oh, of the, the sewer God. and then could drive along. For- also, the most mismatched fight ever. You have <laughs> Batman, beefy superhero with all the gadgets in the world that can fly. The Penguin, a squat man <laughs> with an extreme case of nasty, nasty asthma. But, I mean, honestly, that film had uh, Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman flipping out of a building, stopping in front of Batman and the Penguin, saying meow, and then the building exploding behind her. How do you not love that? That is fantastic. Look, I mean, I appreciate Burton did a, a, a very good uh, new take on the 60s TV show. Um, oh, yeah. my goodness. Uh, so it, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's an improvement in terms of treating it as an adaptation of the 60s TV show, Batman. Uh, I just enjoy the uh, the new uh, the new trilogy, which is a bit more respectful to the source material. This is nonsense. This is absolute revisionist nonsense. I'm sorry, you just <laughs> pushed me over the edge. I didn't even know this was a thing that you couldn't like <laughs> that Batman, you, the you, Tim Burton this Batman. A, this pushed me over the edge. You're getting my ba- Batman rant now. Th- there are many Batmans, and the... The idea that the only right one is the sort of 80s dark Alan Moore, Frank Miller Batman is nonsensical. Absolutely nonsensical. Oh, so you'd, you'd like to see Batmite, would you? In a I, film, would you? Honestly, the Tim Burton Batman is absolutely as valid an interpretation of that character because there are many valid interpretations of that character as the Christopher Nolan one. I think. But I anyway. don't like it as much. And so concludes <laughs> Sorry, what was the question again? <laughs> the question so, was franchise reboots. reboot cancer. I'll, I'll be quiet now. You, you, you go say something. <laughs> he mentioned Zachary Quinto at a spot, which is a, which is a very good one. Mm. I think the, the Star Trek reboot has been very well cast across the board, really. Actually, I said I'd be quiet, but Carl Urban has two, doesn't he? Carl Urban's got he's, Dread he's as great. well. He's got yeah, Bones and Dread, and he's he's brilliant. A good as pick both. for Dread, I would say. Yeah, even better than Sly Stallone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even better. Even better. Even better. Anyway, so um, I'll be quiet again. I've got to mention Andrew Garfield. Predominantly because he looks like me, apparently. Yeah, he, he totally Although he does. doesn't, listeners. Phil, when you're dressed up in Spider-Man costume and he's dressed up in Spider-Man costume, you both look like Spider-Man. Yeah. So that's I had true. Spider-Man pajamas when I was a kid as well. So I could have done that thing at Comic-Con. Easy. They wouldn't have fit so well. But <laughs> mm, I've got, you know, Spider-Man credentials. That could work. Anyway, I like him. He's all right. Although I didn't like much like the film particularly. Do we think he's better than Tobey Maguire? I think he has the potential to be better, but I don't think the script or... Uh, the bit where he goes, oh, small knives, you found my one weakness, is that bit where I went, oh, right, that's the film I wanted to watch when I went in to watch The Amazing Spider-Man. And hopefully, and we've been promised this, with the sequel, we will get more of that kind of more acerbic, fun, silly, mm. um, jokier... Some nice, some of that kind of slightly snarky, but not nasty snarky, um, interplay with uh, Martin Sheen. And with Emma Stone that we saw before the, you know, that was the first stuff that they showed us before they showed us him as Spider-Man, and that looked really promising. Mm. It looked kind of, you know, Aaron Sorkin sort of teen stuff, and I like that. <laughs> Let's crawl and talk. <laughs> <laughs> I think Emma Stone would be a great piece of reboot casting if she was being recast as Tomb MJ. Raider. No, as right. MJ, as Gwen Stacy. She doesn't. She's never made sense to me as Gwen Stacy. She always made sense to me as MJ. But whatever, they've just kind of changed that character into the other character, and I guess it works. Um, but yeah, no, I I do like. I think the cast was the big strength of that film, really, wasn't it? Um, it'll be interesting to see. Speaking of Star Trek, how Chris Pine does as Jack Ryan, which obviously has been cast in the past. I would have said maybe Harrison Ford's a pretty good piece of recasting as him. Yeah, I wrote that down as well. Oh, I think yeah. Harrison Ford was very very good. As uh, as Jack Ryan because it was Alec Baldwin, wasn't it? And it then, was Alec Baldwin, and then it became uh, Ben Affleck. Affleck afterwards, and now Pine, Bafflion. Did they call him? I don't know. Um, I thought yeah. Alec Baldwin was great as the Shadow. <laughs> <laughs> okay, 
We're, we're forgetting Mark Ruffalo, who was the standout, breakout, Hulk out, rage out uh, star of the Avengers, who just walked in confident as you like and was one of the best things in it. Oh, he was great. Mm. He didn't have an origin movie to set himself up as who he was. He wasn't mm. snuck into other movies. He was just there and he was great. And, you know, that's why we keep getting teased by Kevin Feige and a bunch of other people in Marvel HQ that they want to do something else with him, not necessarily in a film form, but something because I want to see more of his Hulk. I want to see him awkwardly banter with Tony Stark as they assemble small bits of technology. Science bros. They can do something with him, but not in a film. What, they're going to sort of walk him around. You've heard the Hulk TV show, yeah? Yeah. So, a Hulk TV you show. You think you can see Ruffalo in a... Well, yeah. If in the original Hulk TV show he can Hulk out because he can't get the wheel off his broken car, then <laughs> I can see Mark that's Ruffalo happened, bringing some gravitas to, me, to, to that. That's, that's, you know, that's, that's just a, that's, that's an every man story. True enough. And every Hulk story. But then you've got Daniel Craig recently, and we could talk about all the Bonds. I mean, personally, when they decided to eventually give in and give friend of the producers, Roger Moore, a crack of the Bond whip, I mean, that was a stroke of genius. And Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, this, this relates to what Helen was saying about Batman. I think Bond is, by definition, I know you're not a big Bond fan, so he doesn't have to sit there and suffer this bit, okay. but he's got an elastic character. He's got lots of different things that you can emphasise, lots of notes on the piano, as it were, and each of the Bond cast people that they've cast as 007 has kind of as you know tinkled a little that's different part of the that's keyboard that's not rebooting is it is that rebooting well, is Daniel it rebooting Craig was before rebooting. we knew this is rebooting Daniel Craig was rebooting and also yeah that was that was I think Roger Moore was a kind of a reboot because his tone was so different you can see the similarities between Connery and Lazenby in so much as they're quite mm. physical whereas Moore okay. was kind of slyer and slicker and, and, and kind of weaselier yeah. even actually Goldeneye was a bit of one as well wasn't mm. it oh certainly I think I mean the the question of whether the Bonds generally are reboots sequels or something I think it's something <laughs> we've touched on it before but honestly it's it's a thorny thorny question are they Fair the enough. same character or not like Apu like Apu yes mm-hmm. Um, mm. okay let's move on uh, next question most annoying unresolved subplot this uh, is from at DJ's arts and he suggests or she Mountain Dew Transformers or the lizards at the Amazing Spider-Man oh we come back to that what's Mountain Dew Transformer uh, do you remember there was the uh, the drinks machine yeah. which was which was selling Mountain Dew which I believe is a popular drink in America is it? which was transformed it into a transformer by the All Spark. I'm sure you don't, remember it. I don't remember that. Transformers, they're like robots that change into other things. Robots was, in disguise. I know, line. I'm aware of it. I've seen the uh, films. They made some films in this country called America. <laughs> I have seen fi- Look, Dan, it's getting out of control. I've seen many, many films from this, this mystical land of which you speak. <laughs> Transformers amongst them. I just don't remember that particular subplot. What was the, so what was the gist of... Did it have a... We don't know what happened to it. Was it a goodie? Was it a baddie? It seemed like a baddie. Did they defeat it? Did it run off into the sunset? Mm. What happened to the Mountain Dew Transformer? I want to find out. That sounds interesting. It's a good question. Initially, I read it and I thought, I've got literally no idea because by definition, a lot of these subplots, you just forget because they get, they're they're put in the sidings and you move on with where they want to take you. But then I thought about it a bit more and something came to me, which was Soderbergh's Contagion, where it has this, you know, it is an ensemble. It's kind of, you know, different threads happening at the same time. And Marion Cotillard plays, uh, I think, a World Health Organization officer who goes out to China to find, you know, it's a little bit like World War Z, the, the, the yep. ground zero of this of this contagion. And her character gets kind of, I think she gets taken hostage by the, the, the Chinese type um, people. And we never really see her again. We never really find out what happens to her. And if you read up on um, Scott Z. Burns, who wrote the script for it, it actually gets to the nub of this, which is that I think most subplots that are unresolved in films, they know that they've been on. The, the filmmakers know that they're not mm. stupid. They're like, yes, but they've made a pay, it's a payoff between mm. 
keeping the momentum. And I think Burns and Soderbergh had this, you know, nugget, sort of nutted this out where they could have, you know, hung out and introduced what happens to, to Marion Cotillard's character, but it drains the film of momentum. So mm. they decided not to. So it leaves it hanging. So I think often that's what, what does happen. I think that's true. I mean, the Muppets came to mind for me because <laughs> the whole, f- no, honestly, the whole film's about getting $10 million so they can get out of this contract. And spoiler, they don't. And Ted, uh, Tex Richmond ends up owning the Muppet name as well as the Muppet studio, right? And the only thing that resolves that entire subplot, they just basically are like, hey, we'll be all right. We're the Muppets. And they go out and have a sing song. Mm. The only thing that ties up the actual plot of the film is a headline on a newspaper that you see over the end credits, which says that because he got hit on the head, again, during the end credits, he has a total change of heart and gives them back their name and their studio, Right. And it's mentioned, literally, it's a newspaper headline, and that is the only thing that ties up the entire film. So it's technically not an unresolved subplot, but it is definitely a thrown away <laughs> plot, you know, which um, which stands out. It just makes me think this whole Muppets thing is a bit silly. Have some respect. They're not putting the drama at the front of the of the caboose, as, as, as it were. But look, I mean, Shakespeare, that guy, <laughs> wait, right? Wait, wait. wait. Let's Sha- look, yeah. Let's look at yeah. where we've gone From today. the Muppets. No, no, not the Muppets. To- we went from Contagion <laughs> yeah. to the Muppets to Shakespeare, as you were. <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, right? This classic, you know? Yeah. The, what happened? It's just like, even the top dudes have done it. It's <laughs> They're fine. They're dead. They're dead. <laughs> but, you know, Tom Stoppard obviously took that and ran with it. Maybe <laughs> if we can come up with someone can take this Mountain Dew Transformers thing and wow. make, uh, you know, Rosencrantz-style what happens to the Mountain Dew machine. I'm going to ping your pong when I go back from uh, Rosencrantz and we're going to go to the Wolverine, uh, which really, really wound me up. Uh, not the Wolverine is in the movie called The Wolverine, which is annoying because it's called The Wolverine and that can be confusing because when you refer to the original movie uh, that is just The Wolverine, but it has more people than just The Wolverine, X-Men Origins, colon, The Wolverine, it has two sequel hooks at the end. Yeah. Deadpool, huh. Yeah. He's, he's not dead. Mm. So, and Wolverine heads off to Japan. And yeah. you see him hocking back a sake. And, you know, what, what are you doing here? Are you drinking to forget, says the bar lady. And he goes, no, I'm drinking to remember. Oh, that's quite a nice line. Quite good. Mm. Except that that is totally invalidated by what happens in the Wolverine. I think we're going to get on to both well, of Well, yeah, that's actually the like question. the next question. Is going um, to, so maybe we should return to this. Yeah. I want it to meld then, together. I well, I've, I've got, I, I do have something to say about I don't get annoyed by unresolved subplots. I yeah. like them. Ooh, mm. I like them. Life is messy mm. and tangled. <laughs> there are loose ends all the time. There are loose ends and yes. tangled? <laughs> Very good. What happens to the frying pan? Yes. No, but it's kind of it's really what Phil what Phil was kind of kind of getting at in that that you have to make creative decisions to to leave things. But you know, I kind of I kind of like you know to go to something I was saying last week. I like not knowing what happens to the robot in Silent Running, for example. Uh, I like the fact that the embryos in Jurassic Park just roll off into the mud. And that's it. That's the last we see of them. I like the fact that uh, the suitcase of money in Fargo gets buried and is never found again. Life just isn't like that. Although, I'm still annoyed that I still don't know what the hell Starbuck was at the end of Battlestar Galactica. Um, yeah, well, no, sh- shut up. She was awesome. I think that's the main thing. Um, yeah, my, my, The thing that really annoys me sometimes Touché. is not technically a subplot. It's where... You're just left going, how is that a happy ending? At the end of T2, they're in a factory full of dead bodies and there's no one around to blame and they are wanted fugitives. And presumably by this point, the police are responding. What's up with that? Or any number of horror films, for some reason, the bogeyman is the one that comes to mind, where 
all the people around a particular person mm. are dead, horribly killed. They're standing there, probably covered in all these people's blood. And that's the happy ending because they've mm. killed the, you know, mystical monster, which has then disappeared. What oh, the you get heck that all the time. There's no grief oh, counselling in movies, is there? There's just like, oh, my God, terrible thing has happened. Now I have had revenge and killed the person that killed that person. Everything's great. Hooray. Yeah. And you're kind of sitting there <laughs> thinking, doesn't anybody call the police? I hate to bring up Crank 2 again, but there is a there is a moment in Crank 2 where a character from Crank 1, he's been horribly affected by the uh, events of Chev Chelios being Chev Chelios. Uh, he's having a therapy session and he's discussing this with a former porn star who happens to be playing a uh, psychotherapist. And it's actually one of the funniest moments in the film. He's sitting there saying, you know, this has happened, this has happened, and she's explaining what he needs to do. And then a stray bullet rebounds off 16 different things through a window, goes in, blah, 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 and then pop straight ahead mm. so yeah sometimes you do get grief counselling in sequels and sometimes they end in a way that may require more grief counselling <laughs> well the other end of the spectrum is when you have like the the post credit um, there's a technical term for this there's... sting sting. no 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 no, no not the no. sting the, you know the exposition explains what happens to all the characters mm-hmm. and, oh, uh, the, the, the thing the lines the, yeah the lines no, and when you've got like, and, yes. when you've got more than sort of four or five sort of yeah. slides worth of information Sloppy. you're thinking you haven't really done yeah. you know the, the, the job here really it's, most of the film yeah. is, is being I now. hate the joke ones at the end of a comedy when they do it. Well, like Anchorman and, does it badly. We've talked about this in a previous podcast where mm. when everything that you mention, you know, you you now work in this TV show which is called, you know, no. mm. yeah. Porn Island. Well, no, you don't. And Brick isn't part of the new administration in the bush. Yeah. Well, yeah. yet. Yeah. I mean, this is, next one's only set in 1980. He still has time. <laughs> a good example of something that you were mentioning is... Um, is Fincher's Zodiac which doesn't you know I mean the story is unresolved so the film's unresolved Ooh. and that does have a lot of you know and don't watch it on the plane because you can't read the credits and you have no I have no idea what happens to any of the characters whatsoever or whether they caught him or anything did you watch it on a plane Phil? I used to watch it on the plane yeah oh, dear, I know American movie as well what about that there's an amazing interview with Joss Whedon in EW Entertainment Weekly online you should check it out it's really worth us uh, mentioning but he talks about Empire Strikes Back where the whole bloody film is left hanging which is fine now because you know that Jedi happens, and but you know when you'd seen it in the cinema, which I did way back when, mm. you kind of you finish and you're like, uh huh, it's a great ending. Bad yeah. guys win, love it. They don't well, yeah, they sort of win, but everyone's kind of literally left hanging. So you know, it wouldn't really make sense if that was the end of the mm. the end of the franchise at that mm. point, would it? No. Would it, Dan? Would what it? about the end of X Men Origins Wolverine? <laughs> and this leads on to our next question, which is, if you had one choice, thank you for this question, by the way, at i underscore am irec. Uh, because it feeds nicely into a segue. If you had the choice, which film would you remove from the X-Men saga? And that's why I would remove X-Men Origins, colon, the Wolverine, slash just Wolverine, because it ruins Deadpool and it ruins a bunch of auxiliary characters that could have been very interesting. Bolt uh, is, is a character who I would have liked to have seen more of, but is just killed, and that's that, in the middle of a carnival. Boo. Uh, but yeah... I would remove that. And I'd actually also, dare I say, remove the Wolverine, but I can only remove one, so... Well, you see, I'm more... I'm I'm torn between X-Men Origins Wolverine and X-Men The Last Stand uh, for this because I think both of them squandered the X-Men canon Mm. so badly because I think, you know, The Last Stand, they kill Cyclops and, you know, for all that... We focus a lot on Wolverine when we're talking about the X-Men. Yeah. Um, I certainly do. Cyclops is the heart of the team. He is one of the most constant presences in, in the whole X-Men canon. He has been yeah. for 50 years at this point. And it makes no sense whatsoever on any level, narrative, moral, 
canonical anything to kill him off the way that they did in The Last Stand. That's not even mentioning the use of Juggernaut. That's not even mentioning mm. the miscasting of Angel. That's not even just dealing with the, the mishandling of, of much of the Phoenix saga up until the final moments. Um, and again, that probably should have been Cyclops, not Wolverine. It just... It was just very, very upsetting that the solution is never throw mutants at a problem. And both those films, you know, suffer from that mm. syndrome. Um, and uh, But I, I, for me, I think The Last Stand suffers from it worse. Mm. I mean, I, I, I agree with that. But I, I, I just want to send a note to, to 20th Century Fox. And, and maybe this is the note. Stop getting Wolverine wrong. <laughs> Honestly, come on. And this isn't a criticism of Hugh Jackman, who I thought was amazing casting as the character back in back in the day uh, and continues to play it well. But, I mean, it's like in that last movie, and I keep banging on about this, what happened to his, his heightened animal senses? That element of his power set, which, which was there from the beginning. You know, there's that bit in that last movie, The Wolverine, where these guys get the jump on him. They, they break in and they, they get what's her face and drag her out into the street. That never would have happened. He would have absolutely smelt them before they got in there, heard them before they got in there. You don't get the jump on Wolverine like that. It, it just it just bugged me that they dropped that entire element of the character, which is very integral to him because he is animalistic, and you know mm. there's that that whole that whole side of him. I think sometimes with the with the superhero genre, it helps to have someone that has a bit of distance from from the mythology, and mm. so they can you oh, know sure. you know J.J. Abrams' Star Trek is a good example. James Mangold, the Wolverine, perhaps not so much because I mean he came in 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 this booth and talked about the fact that he wasn't you know he didn't really have any great interest in the superhero thing at all in the first place and it took mm. him some time to warm up to the idea and but I don't think he brought a lot of interest in those details to it which is probably what it needs but then I think I mean I think there's a there's an element of that that helps and an element that doesn't so I think the and I think you actually personally I think you see it very well with Star Trek which is it really helped the first film not to be too tied to canon and not to be yeah. too anal about detail um and it really hurt the second film to pay lip service yeah. to the fans because you didn't quite understand what made that work in the first place, I think. Mm. So I, yeah, I think it, it can, I think that the focus is, should really always be on the story. And, you know, I, I know I'm sort of, I seem to be picking holes from a canon point of view, but also the, the reason that I do that in some cases and not others is because in some cases the canon works brilliantly as a story, as, a, as, as something to do with these characters. And where it does that, you should absolutely do it. I mean, for example, the end of Watchmen, to me, uh, on screen is a little bit more elegant, actually, than mm. the one on it's the comic book It's a lot more page. elegant, yeah. yeah. It's a lot more elegant, absolutely. But, you know... But I, I understand why people got crazy about it, but mm. honestly, just, you know, chill pill. I much, time. much prefer the original. The original thing had an emotional shock to me where I had to stop reading and really think about that idea of a superior force that unites a group of people. I, mm. yeah, there are, there are points to be said on both sides, and I totally understand why they did it in the film. In fact, it was a good decision to do it in the film. I wasn't upset that they did it mm. when they did it in the film. It doesn't stop me preferring the original, obviously. So yeah, yeah. that's still there. Oh, no, I'm completely respect the original and I'm going to get letters of complaint now for in any way <laughs> um, daring to criticise the, the immortal Watchmen mm. but you know there are there are there are changes that you can make that can still work and I think sometimes there are changes that you make that really don't okay well thank you for those questions um, as ever if you'd like to uh, drop us a line you can get hold of us on Twitter we are at Empire Magazine and you should use the hashtag Empire Podcast or we won't see it because we're just so popular uh, you can also drop us an email at podcast at empireonline.com or we're on Facebook where we are also Empire Magazine. 
Okay, time now for our first guest. Uh, for six years, Matthew Fox was lead castaway Jack Shepard on the hit TV show Lost. That ended a couple of years ago, and since then his movie career has been somewhat eclectic. He was a sinewy bad guy in Cross, and next week he shows up in post-World War II drama Emperor, playing a real-life soldier. He popped into the pod booth to talk to Phil and Chris about that movie and the small matter of being almost entirely cut out of this year's World War Z. Uh, we're delighted to be joined at the pod booth by Matthew Fox, uh, star of Emperor. Hello, sir. Hello, how are you doing? I'm good, how are you? Uh, I'm well, I'm well. Are you, are you not jet-lagged then? Uh, no, I'm very jet-lagged, actually, <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm doing all right. Uh, I was up at 4.30 this morning, like, right-eyed, bushy-tailed, uh, and I'm not feeling so right-eyed and bushy-tailed anymore, but... We'll get you through it. Yeah, yeah, it's all good. Because I read an interview with you where you said you don't actually watch your own films. So do you pay attention to other things around your career? Like not at all. Okay. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I I really I don't. You must I mean, I don't, I've never films. Googled myself. I don't look at anything involving. Uh, Should we Google you now? No, please don't. <laughs> please don't. Um, Which I, of your films have you seen? Uh, I've seen. Well, I saw Emperor because I um, I wanted to see it with a Japanese audience in. Japan. That was the first time that I'd seen the film. Uh, I really don't enjoy watching the, anything that I'm in. It just kind of ruins it for you, for me personally. If I'm in it, I can't really drop into the into the thing the way that I love to. I love to go to the movie theater and wait for the lights to go down and and fall into another world. It's one of my favorite things in the world, and I love to go to the theater and have the same experience or very different experience. But but to fall into into a story. And if I'm in the thing and I was involved in dedicating three or four months of my life to the behind the scenes making of it and trying to create that illusion, it's just never the same experience. So I, I, I try to avoid it. I wanted to ask you about something I've always been really fond of, and I'm not sure that you are as fond of it from some of the things that I've read, but Party of Five, going way back to the beginning of your career, is that not a good experience for you or, or just something that you were keen to move on from when it finished? It was it was an incredibly good experience. I think that I have spoken about it. Maybe uh, I was frustrated during that six years because I felt that Scott and I, Scott Wolf, and I were were playing men that were you know just so soft. I mean, <laughs> I, I really felt like it was a show that was uh, sort of largely for a female audience, and I felt like men were represented in a way that we imagine females want us to be, you know, and not who we actually are. And so I always felt a little bit frustrated by the character, Charlie and, and Scott, I think was as well with Bailey, that we felt a little bit like we were two dimensional characters on that show that we never really got to be sort of complete and, and that we were sort of uh, bashing our heads up against that at times. And it was frustrating. The, the experience overall was absolutely fantastic. And I look back on it with very, uh, with fond memories. I mean, it was, it was, uh, I still, I, I, I actually uh, saw Nev not long ago. I hadn't seen Nev for years after the show had wrapped. It was actually, I was doing a play here in London, and she was still living in London, and we kind of reunited, and it was absolutely fantastic. I, I you know, exchanged emails with Scott every now and then, and, you know, I, I have really good memories of that time. You all kind of went on to do really cool things on the big screen. Yeah. yeah. But I guess you, you haven't reuned. It's not even a word. <laughs> reuned. You haven't reuned since then, <laughs> have you? Presumably. Oh, oh, yeah, I mean, do you think one day you might all go back together again and just shoot the shit or is is that just uh, consigned to the past? No, I think that, you know, 
I think it'd be, I mean, just on a real, on a personal level, I think, I hope at some point that we would have some sort of reunion like that. I don't see us ever, um, you know, getting the band back together, but, no. uh, <laughs> <laughs> you and Skull could, I mean, put a meth uh, lab I, I really don't. You weren't itching to be Batman, for example. You're, it doesn't sound like you got a superhero movie in you. Well, actually, there is. Uh, uh, I mean, I'm a, I'm a ki- in that respect. I would have loved to have been Batman. Yeah, because I, I still have that sort of comic book geek in me growing oh, up as a kid. That um, those types of things, Batman specifically. If you yeah. said Superman, absolutely not. But Batman specifically. The Dark Knight. Uh, I could be coaxed into that situation. Batman, I can see. I'm just yeah. Yeah, yeah, you got it. You got the chin. You got yeah, it. Yeah, I think that. Yeah, they missed. They missed the boat. They missed on the that trick. One. They yeah. did. They, they can did. always change your minds. Well, I don't we'll think see. they made the athlete we'll thing see. public. So <laughs> they can always go back on that one. If they want. Batman yeah. versus Superman versus another Batman. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Two Batmans. <laughs> Batman. The darker. The darker night. <laughs> yeah. The darkest um, night. Is that what you would take it? I would take it. To Probably that. dark. Oh, yeah. yeah. There are no romantic comedies really to speak of on the Matthew Fox TV <laughs> but I imagine you've probably been sent a lot of scripts down the years and I wondered is it easy to spot a bridesmaids from a you know any other slightly ropey romantic comedy uh, honestly I have I I can't remember um, the last time I saw a romantic comedy script I think I got a few of those there for a little while and, and I don't know what happened uh, maybe I just shot them down so heavily that the people that I work with were like don't even bother sending Matthew another one of those or the people in the industry just don't see me in that capacity anymore I don't know but honestly that is a genre that I'm going to do everything possible to stay away from (laughs) fair enough it's interesting because once Lost finished you, you seem to deliberately get as far away from Jack and that show as you possibly could I mean you did Alex Cross Mm -hmm. No one would look at that show, at that film, and go, "That's Jack Shepard," right? Which I imagine was the point for you. Um, and is it true that you went back and forth between that film and what were, what we call a set over here? But yes, I was. Uh, there was some overlap um, between what I was doing on Alex Cross and uh, and World War Z. What was it? Um, I, I, I know that may be a sore point, but I think it's something we'd love to talk to you about. I mean, obviously, it's you not were... a sore point at all. I mean, uh, you know, I I had. I chose to be a part of that in um, in hopes that you know the the role was originally designed. The role was originally in the film more than it is now, obviously. Mm. But it was still a very it was really a, a small role and really a a setup, you know, for if the movie worked and if it became a trilogy, which it was designed to be, that that role would sort of become the antagonist to um, Brad Pitt in the in the second film. And I also chose it because I, I love uh, Mark Forster and really uh, have become good friends with him over the years. And he, he asked me to, to be a part of it and told me what he had in mind. And so we went and did it, and I had a great time working on it. You know, it turned out that they basically reshot the second half of the film. And, um, <laughs> you know, I haven't seen the movie, so uh, I... I, I think that I'm barely in it and that most of the material that I shot was cut out and um, you know it happens that happens especially when you're already starting with a role that's sort of an obvious setup for a possible second yeah. film yeah yeah but when, when did you first get uh, word that you weren't going to make the cut so to speak oh I don't remember it was sometime back in uh, sort of May or something I think but you know still if the sequel does happen and they did come to you and say you know we'd like you to play that role again would you do it or is it Something that maybe. Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't see. Well, I mean, 
obviously I'd be a little bit wary. I'd have to sort of have a conversation with someone um, mm-hmm. about sort of what their plans were. And I do have a contract that exists <laughs> where I'm contracted to do that. So uh, there would be a couple of levels of, of conversations that would have to go on. But um, yeah, I mean. Uh, Matthew, we've got to let you go in a second. But we have this thing on the podcast called the IMD Bunker, which is uh, an, every actor has a trivia page on the IMDb, mm-hmm. usually filled with made up rubbish. Mm-hmm. But I want to know some facts past you and see whether they're true or false. Okay. Okay, so here we go. Uh, let me see. The first one He frequently hosts parties at his house where the whole cast of Lost gathers <laughs> to watch the last episode they had filmed. Uh, that was true the first year of Lost. Okay. That was true the first year of Lost. But then you stopped because of the whole watching yourself thing or smaller house? Yeah, exa- well, it just sort of like, I, for me, it was uh, it was really just about the whole cast getting together and bonding and, and sort of seeing what we were making. And it kind of really went for the first half of the first season of Lost. And then after that, it kind of splintered and people went on their own way. Okay, okay. Uh, he's been horseback riding since he was six years old. I'd say that's true. That is true? Yeah. You're friends with Green Day's Billy Joe Armstrong. Uh, there was a period of time where Billy, Joe, and I uh, hung out. Our families uh, hung out. He has uh, great kids and wife, and we did some family vacations together, but we haven't done that uh, in years. He's so I would have to say that's out of sort of in the past. <laughs> Come on. An acquaintance. Maybe. Yeah, he's an acquaintance. Okay, he's an acquaintance. Uh, announced during a recent appearance, not that recent, uh, on daytime talk show Ellen that he intends to quit smoking in 2007. Did you? <laughs> Uh, I didn't quit smoking in 2007, but I did quit smoking in 2013. Yes. Well, there you go. So, Congratulations. When? So that needs to be updated. Okay. When uh, I quit smoking uh, I July 20th. Yes. Good stuff. And how's it holding up? This is, you all right? I'm very, very happy and feel like I've finally reached a point in my life where I, I am done with it. <laughs> okay. And uh, the last one. He is a private pilot and owns a Beechcraft Bonanza G36 aircraft. This is true. Okay. Is that still the only aircraft you have, or do you have uh, I a I actually fleet? have another aircraft as well, so I have two airplanes now. <laughs> it's a little bit... Uh it's a little extravagant to have two airplanes, but they're both very. They're, they have their both sort of specific tools for specific missions. Okay, I imagine at some point half of Hollywood is in the air. So have you ever, have you ever passed John DeFolta on your way, you know, wave at him from the cockpit? Kurt Russell, yeah, Kurt Russell, etc. Harrison Ford. There you go, precisely. I got one last one. It's not actually on IMDb, but you said some things about. Your daughter is a big directioner, I think is the term. She loves One Direction. Yeah. You said some negative things about One Direction, which is a little bit like upsetting the mafia, uh-huh. but like a teenage mafia <laughs> yeah, with really yeah. high octave stuff. I know. Have you received any death threats yet? Or, uh, or B, have you taken your daughter to see Morgan Spurlock's documentary in a kind of a olive branch to the directioner community? Is this the movie that just came out about yeah. them? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, what's it called? Like, this is it, or here this, we are. Who who are we? Oh my god! Uh, I actually, I, I sarcastically, and she knew it was sarc- I said to her, I on opening day, I said, I really want to go see that movie with you. And she said, Dad, there's not a snowball's chance in hell you're going to see that movie with me. <laughs> you should go just to just to like I have so much fun busting her chops (laughs) about being a One Directioner I can't even tell you because she had Bieber fever for a while too dude yeah first it was Bieber fever no known cure yeah and guess what she doesn't have Bieber fever anymore (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) so just like that came and went the One Directioner thing is gonna come and go as well this is what I keep telling her when she's in it she can't see that 
So what are you trying to make her listen to? Are you trying to lure her over Actually, to the I'm light side finally of the getting her to like listen to some music that's not just terrible. One Direction is not all. No, I can't do that. (laughs) It is pretty much all terrible. No, come on. That's 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 harsh to say. (laughs) Don't put it on me. (laughs) (laughs) Can't believe you said that. I'll be different. Recently, gotten really into this. uh, What is it? The XX or something like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, British band. Yeah. Yeah, and that's. Far, I mean, obviously, very far away from Bieber Fever and One Direction or Tice. So it's kind of moody and yeah, good, yeah, it's not bad. So One Direction's like a gateway band to <laughs> more interesting bands. She, I think, she ultimately will develop some great musical taste. Fantastic, fantastic. I'm Matthew Fox. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. Thank, Thank you, you very much. much. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Movie news time now. Get your movie news here. What have we got today? Yes, this is uh, a casting news, but it's TV show casting news, and I think this is quite interesting. HBO show Criminal Justice. Now, people may remember that because uh, James Gandolfini, RIP, was the uh, lead actor um, in a pilot of this show, which is based on the BBC series, which mm-hmm. I actually never saw, so that's not the reason I'm interested. But basically, Gandolfini was cast as an ambulance chaser who gets caught up in this plot obviously they shot the pilot hbo went you know what we don't want this to be a series but how about a mini series and then sadly james cadolfini died anyway they regrouped and now they have cast the new lead actor who is robert de niro whoa tell me about this guy where should we know him from um well he's, he does a lot of comedy Oh, does he? Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. He does a lot of comedy. Is he, is he the guy who does a lot of this kind of pastiche movies about um, uh, traditional Italian mafioso families? He's that yeah, kind of yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah, uh, you might. He, he did two films with Billy Crystal, uh, in which he played a hilarious mob boss. And oh, um, I know who he is. Yeah. he is uh, the guy in Rocky Bullwinkle. That's correct. Thank uh, you. He okay. was he was General Evil, whatever his name was, Supreme Commander. What was it anyway? Not the point, Ali. I think it's really interesting because it's... Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but has De Niro taken a, a TV role before? I'm just trying to think. I'm trying to think. I can't think of one. Tell me, please, if I'm wrong. I can't think um, But, I mean, can you imagine? Can you... I'm just like, cast your mind. This is, this is where we are now. This is, this is, this is you know, the world of, of, of quality entertainment now. Cast your mind. About 15 years ago, right, how odd would it have been for Robert De Niro to be the guy who is considered a replacement... For James Gandolfini, that guy out of you know the one scene in True Romance, I think you know it's it's this is this is where we are now. That that it's considered surprising that that Robert De Niro should be, or rather, it's not considered surprising. That's my point. It's not considered reply, surprising that Robert De Niro should be the replacement for James Gandolfini, and also you know that 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 he should be doing TV at all. So I actually think it's really interesting. I would like to see. I actually think, joking aside about where De Niro is in his film career these days I think the longer form TV drama I think we could see something good from him again I think he needs this I think he needs to step out of of movies and and concentrate on something like this which gives him more material to chew on I think he needs something which actually suits his talents I I think he needs to be pickier I I think a lot of things about Robert De Niro but watching Silver Linings Playbook where you get to see him it's not him him like he still got an Oscar nomination Mm. I personally Mm. didn't necessarily think it was justified but it was that shade of him where you go yes please Mm. we'll have some more of that thank you very much and he was rewarded for dipping his toe into the being good again waters and then you have this there was a movie coming out soon called The Family which was not warmly received by US critics and it's yet another example of him taking his mafioso 
aura and just even though it isn't a substantive object bludging it to death mm. he did that guest spot on 30 rock i've just remembered so maybe that's the perfect setup for uh, <laughs> criminal justice i don't know but yeah. but definitely i mean tv has some incredible drama going on at the moment it's got yeah. to be a good thing that he's there mm. phil what have you got well, I've got a couple of things. Um, we often have touched on the globalisation of cinema and, and, and China is a coming force. Last Sunday, China's richest man, who I'm assuming is wealthier than all of us put together. Ooh, maybe a man just. named Wang, and if you're in Chinese listeners, please forgive my pronunciation, Wang Jialin, I believe, broke ground on a massive new movie studio complex, which is due for completion in, I think, 2017. So mm-hmm. somehow faster than Crossrail. And it's going to have 500 hectares of movie-making machinery. It's going to have a yacht club, an indoor amusement park, a hospital. I don't know what their kind of like working practices are like over there in the film industry, but yeah. When they they remake The Dark Knight. Exactly. So it's a $3 billion project. And I think the reason it's interesting is that it shows that China is not only content to be an importer of Hollywood movies, it wants to do the opposite. And there's obviously going to be a period when it starts to gear up and it'd be interesting to see the sorts of movies they make. Now, um, people that have reported on this point out that actually they have very strict censorship over there. One interesting thing that I, that I, that I read was that Cloud Atlas in, in, in China was cut down by 40 minutes. In its, uh, I mean, it is a long film. Granted, maybe they just found it too long. But, um, you know, that's a, that's a big swathing cut. Um, so see how that kind of artistically, if it's not too stunted by the censorship and by the needs to conform to whatever the government wants to see its movie-making products. But this is big for mm. Hollywood as that's well. That's a big, big propaganda machine, isn't it? It, it, it really is. It, it is. And, um, you know, I think the fact that at the launch, at the breaking ground ceremony, you had people like DiCaprio and Catherine Zeta-Jones, Nicole Kidman, Christoph Waltz, you know, big Oscar-winning names from Hollywood A-listers flying over. Well, they're planning clearly not just to make sort of Chinese films for export, but to bring in Hollywood productions to make films there as yeah. well, aren't they? So, Well, it's interesting and it has a knock-on effect for other film industries, obviously our own included. You know, we people love making films in Britain because we have such great crews and we have great facilities and there's, you know, government tax breaks and stuff. But China has economies of scale and a, on a scale and a size that we can't really compete with. And um, it, it'll be interesting to see, you know, exactly how that, affects people over here and people in Hollywood where they don't make films anymore anyway and all over the world so um, you know Australia stands to struggle in, 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 in the shadow of this thing um, so that was one thing that I thought was worth mentioning the other thing just quickly is that Fox Television has commissioned a series about oh commissioned commissioned G- Gordon um, called Gotham which Slick. that was awful um, <laughs> I'm keeping it in everyone no, please don't keep that in um, Fox TV has commissioned a show about Commissioner Gordon they've uh-huh. come to a deal there was a bidding war over this idea of like an origin story about this character that's obviously mm-hmm. been in the Batman universe for a long time we talked about Batman today so I'll keep it brief but it's hopefully going to be a bit like the bill and <laughs> um, it's called Gotham as I say it's going to be not featuring anything remotely akin to the Christopher Nolan universe it'll be its own thing don't know exactly what that thing is yet, but um, it's going to be showrunnered by the mentalist creator, Bruno Heller, about whom I know virtually nothing. He was involved in Rome as well. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. I'm confused. Why is it on Fox TV and not on, say, the WB? Well, Helen can answer this well, one. Well, uh, Fox TV actually has a long relationship with Batman because they ran the original show back in the 1960s, the one Dan doesn't like. No, no, I didn't say I didn't like it. <laughs> I never um, said I didn't like it. Um, but actually, the, the surprise for me is that this isn't on the CW, which is obviously also a, a Warner-related uh, studio, which obviously 
already has Arrow and soon the plan is the Flash. Uh, so it well, hey. would have made more sense to me to have it there. Uh, but there was a bidding war and Fox clearly put in the bigger or the better bid um, from the point of view of the, of the showrunners. So the plan is this is young Jim Gordon, isn't it? This, he's not a commissioner yet. He's going to be a young, lieutenant or something. Not too young, I hope. Just relating back to that Joss Whedon interview that hopefully will be kept in because otherwise this won't make any sense. But Joss Whedon did say, you know, any advice probably don't work with Fox on the basis of his experiences on Firefly. And, um, and Dollhouse as well. And Dollhouse. Now, you're a lawyer and I'm not sure that, that you know, we can impugn Fox's TV production, but they are very <laughs> strictured, aren't they, in the way that they work. And... Um, be interesting to see what they have in mind for this. It's, it's going to be interesting. I mean, they've already said that they're not going to have Batman. This is going to be Jim Gordon prior to meeting Batman. I mean, I guess he might turn up towards the end somewhere. But surely you've got to have some rogues gallery in there because otherwise, what the heck are it's you CSI doing? Gotham, isn't it? Otherwise, yeah. right? So, yeah. It'll be. We shall see. Yeah, it'll be an intriguing one. Um, but there's a whole episode where he just goes and sort of look for a trench coat to buy. <laughs> Probably, and he um, decides to grow a star. All I mean, the, everything needs an origin story. If it, if it was on the CW, then you know he'd be an incredibly chiselled person who wouldn't want the trench coat to get in the way of his abs. But if it's on Fox, at least it, there, there should be a little bit more. Um, I want grizzled, a little bit not less chiselled. Well, you can hope at least, Dan. But this is TV, so who knows? Ali, what can you tell us? Huge film news. Here are the awards from the Emmys, a TV award show from the Americas, Phil's favourite place in the world. So. The Emmys, it's a TV award ceremony, but I'm going to tell you about it anyway because we care, I care, deal with it. House of Cards was given a lot of nominations back when nominations were announced, but it did not receive that many actual awards, though David Fincher, who he, uh, won for uh, Best Directing of a certain episode, so good for him. Otherwise, the big winners were Breaking Bad, who won Outstanding Drama Series and Best Lead Female well deserved. In the well deserved. Anna Gunn. Yes, she was well deserved. Cranston and Paul were, I think, we yes. can all agree, yes. robbed. Yes. Well, there's a certain amount of yes that that was robbed. But I think once you've given Brian Cranston three awards on the trot for yeah. best lead, there comes a point where you go, well, look, you know, you're good, and we know that what you did in the last season was good. But we're going to give it to Jeff Daniels for the newsroom. Yeah, that's the bit that sticks out like a sore thumb to me. But I, I, I like the newsroom, but really, come on. Actually, I mean, in fairness, they may be saving up because this only takes us to the end of the first half of season five, I think I'm right in saying. So uh, Breaking Bad does have one more shot at next year's Emmys as well. So good for them. Yeah. We've also got Claire Danes, who won Outstanding Lead Actress in a Drama. Mon Family won Best Comedy again. A couple of other slightly interesting points. Uh... Veep got two awards. Uh, Excellent. It's a great show. It's a great show. Uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus won uh, for Best uh, Lead Actress in a Comedy. And uh, Buster Bluth himself, though not in the guise of Buster, Tony Hale won for Best Supporting Actor in a Comedy. And yes, a a perverse twist here is that a show that's been cancelled, which is The Hour... BBC's miniseries, very high-end, uh, only got two series, I believe, starring Q. But Abby Morgan, who created the show, walked off with an Emmy for it, so it's kind of sad. She's got a new show coming out, which is about a gifted detective. I forget its name off the top of my head, but you know she'll go on, so that's at least a good thing. Merritt Weaver had the funniest uh, acceptance speech, where she essentially walked up, picked up her Emmy for Nurse Jackie and said, um, uh, I gotta go, bye, and walked off. So yeah, it's a very interesting Emmy. Uh, you can pick which side of the fence you want to stand on when it comes to Jeff Daniels. He started shooting Dumb and Dumber 2, which is the sequel to Dumb and Dumber. It will be out 20 years after the first movie came out, so that is in 2014 next year. Can you believe that Dumb and Dumber came out 
in 1994. Anyway, yes, he wins an Emmy, and the very next day, he <laughs> frizzes up his hair, does the wonky eye thing, and stands next to Jim Carrey in a uh, beautiful bowl cut. You can check out a photograph of the two of them gurning together on the Empire Online website. Okay, uh, it's also important, I think, to point out that this is New Empire Week, which is always a very Yay! exciting week, and this one is our big... <clears throat> winter preview issue which means it is packed with stuff about some of the best upcoming films dan talk me through it oh yeah it's just uh, it's our big winter preview and uh, we always we always love this time of year because you've still got the remaining big blockbusters it's the most the wonderful ho- time of the year it is the holiday season as they say in uh, in america phil don't they because you are half american we should point this out thanks dan yes they call it holiday holiday season you're walking back i'm, nice. I'm, I'm, I'm being nice i'm being nice to you um, but also it's awards season so you've got this nice blend of of, of big exciting and, and artful awards baiting stuff um, which couldn't be better represented than the you know the film Gravity which is all of those things in one mm. one movie and there is you know just to just to blow my own trumpet my feature uh, about that film uh, in the heart of this preview it's quite good your features. Thank you. Thank you very much, <laughs> Helen. I, I wasn't I wasn't dangling uh, any compliment. <laughs> no, compliment it, it, carrot. It, it is actually not all joking um, aside. It, it's fascinating because it, it talks a little bit about the background to making this film and how difficult it was to make yeah. and. That's pretty astonishing. Yeah. Will you see the film itself? Yeah, that, that, we, let's, let's not get too much because we're going to obviously be devoting a lot of time to that movie in, in, in forthcoming podcasts. Uh, but they never made a movie like this before. And I spent a good 70 minutes with Alfonso Cuaron talking purely about this movie. Normally when we do interviews with people, you kind of, you talk the new film for a bit and then you go, oh yeah, and you know, Children of Men, let's get onto that. Or, you know, you you, you go back through the career and purely talking about gravity, 70 minutes solid, wasn't even supposed to be that long, but we we went over time and he was like no no we need to but it, it was it was it was absolutely fascinating and I've never really had a conversation like it in terms of how a film is made so check that out uh, but of the uh, the cover feature the cover movie is uh, something called The Hungry Games H- Hunger um, Games Dan so close okay okay uh, it's a yes, of The Starving yes. Games isn't it yeah that's right yeah that hilarious movie by which the... isn't in this issue at all <laughs> <laughs> But yes, yeah, so uh, we basically, uh, you know, been hanging out with Jennifer Lawrence for the best part of a year, you know tracking this crazy story that she's had. So yeah, I mean, we we, we kind of we we, we were speaking to her before the first film came out and she wasn't quite sure to expect and then she went on to win an Oscar and then she went on to do this and now she's kind of, you know, bona fide Hollywood blockbuster leading lady. Uh, it's an amazing story. So it's it's that story, but also, you know, if you want to find out a few things about what's going to be in Catching Fire, we've got some of that going on too. Um, we've got interview. Sorry, go I was go just going to say, the thing that struck me about the preview reading through it, and yeah. I haven't read all the pieces yet, but it's, it's fascinating stuff. A lot. It feels like there's a lot of risks being taken with these movies. You know, Nicole Kidman yeah. playing Grace Kelly, you've got Cormac McCarthy's first script with The Counselor yeah. with Ridley Scott, and then, yeah. you know, Spike, Spike Lee's old boys finally coming to the screen. Yep. Yeah. The Secret Life of Walter Mitty feels like, you know, it's a passion project for Ben mm. Stiller, but that's a, you know, that's a big, uh, a big gamble, you'd think. To yeah, that and, one and right also, that's, that's, that's an Oscar bid as well, believe it or not. It's not a, it's not a uh, comedy, uh, you know, it's not Tropic Thunder 2, that's for sure. No, 
And we've also got this issue. We've got uh, Jude Law. We've got a huge interview with him. Um, yeah. It's very fun. We've got um, Carrie is in there, the remake of Carrie. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a, a celebration of 30 years of Return of the Jedi. We've, we've uh, uh, got stuff from the uh, the archives, basically, courtesy of J.W. Yeah, Winsor. It's, the, it's, the script, it's the script meetings when they were trying to thrash out the story. Which is fascinating And it's stuff. really good because there's some really interesting stuff in there where you're kind of reading it and going, why didn't he stick with this when he made the prequels? <laughs> uh, but anyway got some good ads as well <laughs> one thing it doesn't have one of those sniffy um, aftershave things that I quite like that is of oh, course the first, sorry, the the first question we usually ask oh, okay and finally I should say the Jeff Goldblum pint of milk is one of the great pint of milk oh, it's interviews that we've ever done so it's extremely uh, good. the new issue of Empire is out now check it out now it's time for our second guest someone we're very happy to welcome back to the pod booth for a second time Dexter Fletcher has been one of uh, Britain's most uh, prolific character actors for almost 30 years, and last year he switched to directing with the excellent Wild Bill. Now, barely 12 months later, he's back, back, back with his second directorial effort, Sunshine on Leaf, and it's a musical based on the songs of the Proclaimers. So he came in to talk about that, Nando's, Doom, and much, much more with Ali and Phil. Enjoy. Is it true that you have a Nando's black card? Oh, my God. I can't possibly reveal that kind of information. I mean, I'm sworn to secrecy. Those people who have Nando black cards just cannot reveal whereabouts they keep them in their wallet right at the back uh, and how often they use them pretty much every week. Uh, that's just, um, that's you know, you can't do that sort of thing because I would get people rushing up to me in the street saying, take me to Nando's. Well, I mean, say this thing, this hypothetical thing. This hypothetical had thing, yeah. Th- for possibly it happened. Yeah. Why, why would that universe, have come about? I could have, uh, at one stage during the um, the build-up to Wild Bill, possibly gone to a Nando's to see Ed Sheeran play a gig. Possibly. In Nando's? Well, you know, stranger things do happen in this alternative <laughs> universe, don't they? And I might have bumped into Jamal Edwards there, and then... We got chatting, and then guy came up to me, really tall geezer, who didn't look like I had any reason being at this particularly cool gig of Ed Sheeran's, and he said, "Oh, my wife loves you." He was very much like that. That's a very good impression of him. I said, "Oh, that's nice." He said, "I'm the MD of Nando's." <laughs> and Jamal was just looking there, smiling, and then he might have said, "Have you got a black card?" And I was like, "I've no idea what you're talking about." And Jamal was like, you want a black card? I love you the idea. Black... The head of Nando's. He's the plummiest man <laughs> on the is, planet. He really is. He's kind of plummy like that. You love chicken, so <laughs> do I. We love chicken. We've got lots of it. <laughs> he is a bit plummy like that. He was. And uh, and then he went, see there. And off he went. <laughs> and uh, I was <laughs> Jamal and some PR guy. And they were like, you want the card, man? Get the card. And you want the card. I was like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> he went out to his horse and carriage. <laughs> I don't know what, yeah, he did. He went out and, um, and whipped somebody. And, to, no, and then he brought some lovely girl back called Carrie. And she was like, yeah, I can sort you a card. I'd like, I have no idea what it is. And like, oh, you don't know what it is. See, they're that good a secret. Wow. Even I didn't know. So that's anyway, what would have happened had it happened. Something, yeah, it might have happened that I then yeah was was put on a on a very special list. Maybe it's kind of like you know, what's that place where like Tom knighted. Cruise goes <laughs> in Eyes Wide Shut? It's like that. There's <laughs> 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 time to talk about Dexter Cameo. Oh right, yeah. Because yeah. in Wild Bill, you played, and I, I to this day haven't really no- spotted him. Mysterious, really br- mysterious, <coughs> mysterious Barry. Barry. I buy crack at one too point. Too mysterious. Oh, you're too mysterious. <laughs> I buy crack at one point from. 
I think so Hitchcock did, did that you... one of his films. Yeah, he did. Yeah, the, yeah. He's carrying a double bass and he buys crack yep. from Cary Grant and and then, but it's a really quick moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh no, he's buying heroin. Heroin. <laughs> I didn't want to correct you. Yes, heroin. <laughs> Sorry, live film trivia knowledge. <laughs> that was what it used to be. In this one, oh. your cameo I did spot. Yeah, it's a bit more blatant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you sounded like disappointed. <laughs> yeah, that was too easy. Make it harder <laughs> next time. I'm going to make it really difficult next time. You did do a little bit of silhouetting, Hitch style. I mean, your hair is very distinctive, so that's kind of where I, I picked it up. Yeah, I was I was forced into that. Is what my I'm claiming. I mean, we did have a real guy, a real not not, a real not an extraordinary man. super person like me, uh, a real person, a pro. It? Yeah. So, um, uh, but we know this guy, but. It, he once I asked, he was actually a, a genuine drunk. But once I asked him to act drunk, he suddenly found himself very sober and couldn't. I don't know. He just wasn't very good. So we did it a few times, and I really loved the shot. You know, them silhouettes in the window and stuff. It just sort of was nice, and it looks good. Um, and so then my cameraman George Richmond was like, "Okay, Fletcher, you've got to do it." <laughs> He's a bit posh as well. And I hated. It. I cut it out, but I was I was asked to put it back in. I knew it was you because when I recognised the noise you made. Yeah, well, you know, that's that's years and years of, of thespian experience that, yeah. that allows me to fart at will. <laughs> Rada really does go the extra mile, don't they? What lesson is it today? Oh, it's the farting lesson. Very good. Done. Got your leotards on? Good. <laughs> Excellent toot, Tarquin. <laughs> exactly. Like Once more with feeling from the top. I've not heard a toot like that since Olivier was here. Really was special. I've got a curiosity question here. I have been enjoying going through your IMDb page. There's a lot of rubbish on there, by the yeah, way. Yeah, thanks. Um, not that you've made, but trivia about you, I mean. Oh, OK. Um, one I've thing... made a lot of rubbish. Have well. you made some rubbish? I think so. I will be honest, I don't, I don't... Doom isn't the best. It's Exactly. It's not, it's not a standout moment for me. Uh, but it paid well, Doom. Did it? I remember that. Yeah, it paid quite well. Um, but it was like... Yeah, it was weird, though, because I did audition for one director and then ended up... It was another director doing it. But uh, not that that matters, but... Yeah, he was very different that character the first time round when I when I did. He was really angry and fucked up and quite twisted. He's a guy in a wheelchair, and it was, I had this thing in a wheelchair. that's like on the set, I was I had to sit in this remote control wheelchair that was going to then be CGI'd into make half half my body, so I could have my hands free. Uh, they had a, like a, a Czechoslovakian guy operating it. We were filming it in Prague, <laughs> or whatever. yeah, and. Um, and so I would say lines of dialogue and then zzz, <laughs> and I would have to shoot off the, across the other side of the set. But of course the, the Czech guy didn't understand a word I was saying. <laughs> so he would just do it when he thought it was the right moment. So I'd be halfway through a line of dialogue with The Rock and then zzz, <laughs> I was shooting off over the other side of the set. And the director could come to me and say, what are you doing? You can't just you can say the line and then you go. I was like, don't tell me. <laughs> Tell the guy back there who's operating me. I'm not actually in control of my own legs. And then they were like, "Okay, great, well, yeah, sort of that." And they were like, "Look, we've got a problem with the CGI. You can't put your hands down lower beside the wheels." So I, I, I've sort of got my hands up or folded all the way through the film because I, if I put them down there, they couldn't CGI my hands. So I'm sort of doing it like I like Tommy Cooper or something. Or trying to be very serious. Mr. Rock, yeah, no. No, no, Rock. There's someone behind me, isn't there? <laughs> it was just that 
absolutely ridiculous. Oh, I need to rewatch it in the, in the guise of pantomime. It. It just imagine it being it's hysterical. It's behind you. There it really is. There's a it's a behind you moment. And and in the first scene, I mean, I sort of roll across this big kind of space base floor. I just I'm just it's, it didn't go straight. You know, it would go randomly on its own. I'm like, off, gone. It's Hopping off. a wheelie. Yeah. Uh, the question anyway, I've got sorry. here is yeah. nowhere near as interesting as the answer you've um, just given <laughs> to a question I didn't even mean to ask. But you are called in Kickass, uh, and your, your character is called Cody, and yeah. your character in Layer Cake is also called Cody. Now, he drives this, a yellow Range Rover. Is this a coincidence? Yes, yeah, Vaughn, isn't it? Just playing around, Vaughn having a laugh. Well, that's Vaughn's little in joke. I mean, yeah, it's Cody in Kickass. Cody, well, now, what am I in Kickass? I'm Cody, and I get squashed by by um, Nick and Chloe in, in a yellow Range Rover in a car compactor. Mm. And it's the it's a yellow Range Rover, and at the end of Layer Cake, yellow Range Rover. There's a yellow Range Rover, and I and my character Cody, Cody and Tiptoes are actually characters from the original Layer Cake from the book JJ Connolly wrote there. In the and so uh, it's Cody and Tiptoes, and um, and I end up with the yellow Range Rover that, that was actually on the you know on the poster. Yeah, yeah, it's the the um. There's an iron on the top. Oh, yeah, exactly, because there's a guy gets an iron on his chest. Um, but yeah, because I my character ends up with that, he then went, Oh yeah, right, this is a good idea. We're gonna stick you, make call you Cody and compact you in a <laughs> a yellow Range Rover in that so that's really what it is. I don't know if he's gonna stick me in any other films and call me Cody. I and, do want you to be in Secret Service in some way, like Agent Cody. Agent Cody, that's you know, you know, it's it might be possible why you know, George George Richmond who uh shot Sunshine on Leith and Wild Bill is now shooting Secret oh, Service with our friend Mr Vaughan yeah so he keeps phoning up going I'm trying to get Vaughan to get you in I'm like yeah good yeah tell him to put mm-hmm. me in it you know, I want to do some acting that'd be great he sounds less posh now uh, okay I'm telling Vaughan to put you in it and my final weird IMDB star question is very few people spot that though oh That's thank some you some serious trawling going on there I do like to trawl okay uh, you were in The Long Good Friday yeah when was the last time you rewatched that? Because that is an absolutely stunning film. And when masterpiece. when you were in it, did you have any clue? I, mean, I suppose you wouldn't, would you? But when you first watched no. it, you must have gone, "This is just amazing, incredible." Yeah, I remember going to a screen of it um, when I was about fourteen, fifteen. It was like a it was like a, a private screen. I, I remember Bob was there because I, I kind of knew Bob a bit then. Hmm. He was a friend of the family, and uh, yeah, I got invited to a. Sc- I, I don't know what it must have been. I don't know why there's really few people there. I don't remember it was. I mean, it was literally it was a teenager, I was a fourteen or something. And uh, yeah, I thought it was amazing then. It's our Scarface, without a shadow of a doubt. It is our Scarface mm. for me. It's like you know, it's on a par. And in terms of danger and a character who carries weight and power mm. and vulnerability and all those brilliant things that Hoskins did in that film, and and moment by moment you just being absolutely gripped uh, for me you know you watch that film there's not a moment when you're like okay move on you're like mm, you're sure. there every second of the way it's right until the end and you don't never want it to end it's just it's got it's, an awesome ending it really is awesome and yeah. uh, a phenomenal um, penultimate scene isn't it when yeah when um, well, when, he's in the, when the mafia come to meet him in what, the, the mafia room. oh shit him it's a real Breaking Bad sort of moment that I watched yeah, it lo- last year and it's one thing that struck me about it 
maybe it was the year before that it has it captured this moment in time because he's neat he's trying to get the Olympics yeah. into East London yeah and well, Bill. obviously yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. there so, is yeah. a circularity isn't there for you that that's yeah. sort of like you know because you shoot with the, with the Olympic Stadium yeah. as a backdrop in Wild Bill yeah yeah and it's like this thing has come to pass but not quite in the shady way that the longer no, no, I mean no it, what what he's talking about as well is Canary Wolf I mean it's all there all the banking and all that stuff because when we filmed it around there I made another film around that same time in that same area mm. down there on, in, in the docks in East India Dock and um uh that was very different from The Longer <laughs> Friday. That was called The 4D Kids. And that was a, a, a CFF film oh. about secret kids who thought they were secret agents. But we shot it all in the, in the docks down there around that same time. And, um, yeah, it was just, you know, there was nothing there. And then over the next, over through the 80s, 90s, boom, yeah, exactly. It. And that's what Harold Shand is talking about. Mm. What I'm looking for is someone <laughs> who can contribute to what England's given the world. <laughs> la, 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 you know. Ray Winston's been knocking that same old schmutter out for well you can all do it you know we all love it but it is it's absolutely a, mo- a moment in time that, that yeah he was absolutely ahead of his time and right and I suppose there is a with Bill you know ending up there and those kind of they're the sort of legacy aren't they of of those characters I mean it was a time when Bill when Bob spoke to me he was like we should do a thing about a bloke who gets out of prison and finds his kid living alone and that was when I was about 13 or 14 wow wow now not a lot of people know that that's what Bob said to me a long time, and it stuck with me. Yeah. And so I could say, in all honesty, that the germ of, of Wild Bill is, was planted then. Tell me that the germ of Sunshine and Leaf was planted on Bugsy Malone. <laughs> <laughs> you were there watching Alan Parker. Alan Parker thinking, said to me, you know what England really needs is a Scottish musical. Anyway, get those splurge guns out, kids. Let's go. And it stayed with me ever since. I was like, mm, that's a great idea. No, that that idea was the idea of the of the writer Greenhorn, who said he sat with half a bottle of scotch one night, listening to a Proclaimers album, and going, "Oh my God, this is just so obvious," <laughs> uh, you know, a Scottish musical. Use the Proclaimers, and then went to them, and they went, "Yeah, go on, and then do it." And they and they built it up over sort of three years at Dundee Rep. Mm. I mean, you know, you know, no matter what your taste in film is, I mean, Sunshine and Leaf does a very particular thing. You know, Wild Bill is a feel-good movie wrapped in a kind of violent story about kids being neglected and all that sort of stuff, whereas Sunshine is just quite unashamedly, unabashedly a feel-good film. And that, you know, it. and in terms of what it achieves there, I think it achieves it well. It's just whether that's, you know, uh, for you or not. Musicals are hard things to pull off. It feels like a raspberry blow towards filth. Because I wondered whether you'd heard <laughs> Filth was being made and you went, oh, come on. Yeah, we, Evan Welsh, uh, Evan Welsh came to the premiere in Edinburgh on Tuesday, Monday, and loved it. Did he? Mate, he came up to me and was like, it's fucking brilliant. I loved it. I cried, I laughed, I fucking loved it. I was like, are you serious? He's like, mate, it's fucking brilliant. That has made my day. I made my day. <laughs> about day. I was like, really? He's like, mate, it's fucking great. I loved it. Which musical band do you think would make a good musical? Yeah, that hasn't been or, done. Oh, what about George Clinton? Funkadelic. Ooh, does he have a good backstory? Yeah, I, I don't know if he does. Could you get Peter Mullen into it? Yeah, yeah you, told me you could get dreadlock Peter Mullen up and get him in there. <laughs> I don't know, who would make, make a good... Finally, um, the Peter Mullen funk musical. Yeah, that'd be good. I'll tell you, let's come back to that one, because I, I wanted to, I did promise... Have you got an idea then? What's your idea? Hit me with yours. Well, I don't know, it was sort of done, I thought, ELO, but that, that was done by Mark Evans. He did a film called Hunky Dory, which had some Bowie. Okay. It was like a late 70s thing. 
Um, you, I mean, it's like Bowie would seem like, obviously, like Bowie's got yeah, great Bowie, lyrics, yeah. brilliant, and everyone loves him, but it'd be like, yeah. God, I mean, it's hard enough not making Sunshine on Leith saccharine. You know, and I'd be like, what would you do with Bowie? Ashes to ashes. I mean, why are you going to work that into some sort of story? Just do the Berlin God. years. You'd have him <laughs> yes, in the new that'd be a laugh, right? <laughs> just feeling a bit suicidal in Berlin for a while. This is a what, skinny Diamond man. Diamond dogs and stuff like that you're talking about? Low and Low. Yeah, all of that. <laughs> <laughs> Yep, yeah. that, that'll be a proper laugh. Yeah, nice. Good luck with that. The Fleming does a great bit of Brosnaning in my book. Yeah. He, you know, when he just throws himself into it. He does. I was in hysterics. I, I, was, I am every time I see it. Me and my wife just cry with laughter. It's, he's kicking his legs up. He's so jumping about. Fleming. Jason Fleming. But he's like kicking his legs up and he's in, it's in a he museum, goes basically. It, he goes and he's got, he's, got his, he's got a proper three-piece suit. Tartan. Tartan. Oh, what a man! Did you enjoy it? I absolutely, honestly, <laughs> that that, that bit there was me and Phil just like laughing oh, over it all. It's a highlight, Jeez. though, isn't it? it so uh, is. I know. When, as soon as that, that was the first song we filmed as well, and we did it at night because they closed down and obviously closed down the museum for us. And um, yeah, we had to rehearse that. It went through a few different stages because I, first of all, there's there is a version of it where it's like a swing number. We've done it like mm -hmm. a swing number. It's like, oh, hey, you've been knocked down and messed around, and he and we had it like that. And because um, I thought that would be funny if he was like, because the idea came was that as I read the script and there was various songs in it and stuff like that, I was like, okay, what's it doing? What's its service? What's its function? And it got to this point. It was like, and it was it was like a whole bunch of women singing that to her. Mm. Um, and that's how it was in the stage show. I was like, okay, well, that's kind of cool. I get that. But if it was a bloke who's kind of had a, who's in love with her. A crush type thing. Yeah, yeah. Then it means that she's not, you know, she's actually got other options, that character. Do you know what I mean? It's mm. not, you know, her life's not over. We've got to see that there's, you know, she's invested all this thing in her, in her husband. She feels let down by that and this, it all goes wrong. But she's got other people out there love her and want her and would take mm. care of her. So I wanted it to feel like she's not just a victim, like, oh, it's all I've got. So when she goes back with him, that it's not just, well, she didn't mm. have a choice. She had fuck off. So she had actually Fleming dancing and singing around her, doing everything he could to make go, like, hey, look at me, look at me. It would win me over. Well, yeah, well, obviously, you're obviously a huge Fleming huge fan. Huge fan. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, big crush. How did you think of him? Was it immediate, like, well, we need a guy to sing this song, so yeah. who else is it going to be? No, no, no. I was like, it's Fleming. It's got to be Fleming. Because Fleming's so versatile and has been in, seen in so many different things, as so many different things. And I know, you spend any time with Jason, you know what a joy he is to be with and how funny he is. Mm. And, and you know, he's just full of life and fun and he's funny. So I was like, Jay, you've got to do this part. It's just so good for you. It's, it's, it's designed for him. Mm. It's that's actually him in mind. He's the first and only person as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I read something he said a while, a few years back where he, he was talking about how he met, well, before he met you, he had a girlfriend that really fancied you. Yeah. He thought from... He thought maybe from press gang days. Oh, okay. But he said, I'm used to being really good-looking people's ginger friend. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this is just a brilliant line in self-deprecation. Yeah. I think he just sits at home and writes. <laughs> How can I just put myself down but at the same time make you smile and, uh, and make you like me a bit more? He's brilliant. Bastard. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's very canny. <laughs> you could release a book, I'd buy that. I, do you know what I call him? I call him the Long Chaney of modern cinema. Because he's Long Chaney could stand next to you in a bus queue and you wouldn't know. Because yeah. he's always disguised as so many different things. Whereas Fleming comes in a myriad of guises. Yeah. You know, sometimes he's red. Sometimes he's, he's, he's Dr. Jekyll. Yeah. Other times, you know, he's, you know, you just don't know. But he's... Uh, he's just so sort of versatile. He has this amazing range that people don't you, give him credit for. We have to let you go Why? shortly. 
Do we? So we're going to other interviews. Oh, the other interviews. Oh, really? There are other. Let me. Oh. I just wanted to. We promised people that you teach them a bit of Lithuanian, Lithuanian. because of your wife Dahlia is obviously yeah, Lithuanian. Wife, yeah, yeah. Did I not do that before? Did you I did I... that on the phone with me, but I. I you, did. But you promised that you would, if you came in for a podcast again, you would, you would do the. In case anyone encounters a scenario where they go home and there's a giant spider oh yeah going for one of their tomatoes yeah that's right you you could say well so vorus storus that's spider fat valgit is eat and pomodoras is tomato so you could say fat spider eats tomato but the 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 grammar's really bad so it's vorus and i only could put this together because they all kind of rhyme vorus storus valgit which is eat pomodoras hmm Vodas Storus Valgid Pomidoras. Very good. And Lithuanians look at you slightly confused, but then laugh, which is good. <laughs> and there's another one, which is happy birthday, right? In Lithuanian is, so give me more dinner, right? So give me more dinner, which I translated into, so give me more dinner, right? <laughs> I'm hungry, so give me more dinner. But so if you just take the, so give me more dinner bit, you can get, so give me more dinner, and you're telling people happy birthday, which is really straightforward. Well, then, and if you want to say how are you, you say cape giveni. So it's the cape that Batman wears. This is how I just remember these things: cape and giveni. Was I would give anything to hold your cape. Cape giveni, and that's how are you. There you go. So this sounds is, like a Welsh town too. Cape giveni. Cape giveni. It does actually. Yeah, you're going right. to keep giveni. Go down to cape giveni. Uh, so there is ways of cheating and doing it. So give me more Diana is my favourite. I love that. Yeah. Uh, so there's. Your first Lithuanian lesson for the day, Lithuanian 101. Thank you so much for coming to join us no, in cheers, this guys. little pod booth. It's always uh, it's always fun. Always I, I'm joy. hoping that you'll become for us what that uh, Jason Isaac man is for the uh, rivals. You know, commode. Oh right. You know, it's always hello, Jason Isaac. So oh, is it? You're our talisman. You've oh, been right, I'm, I'm up for that. That you're, sounds you're great. You're two for two now. Okay, good. Next movie, whenever that is, please yeah, come yeah. on down. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll be here first. Yeah, <laughs> at the door. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, thank you, guys. Cheers. Okay, now it's reviews time. It is a very packed week this week with no fewer than 11 new releases, but we're going to focus on three or four, starting with what is, by my reckoning, Woody Allen's 463rd return to form in the last 10 years. This is Blue Jasmine, which is a drama starring Kate Blanchett as uh, the wife of Alec Baldwin's kind of Bernie Madoff-style financial guru. So he's packed off to prison. She finds herself penniless and moves to San Francisco to her sister, played by Sally Hawkins, to try and start a new life. Uh, Things don't go quite according to plan. So what did we think about this? The first line of the Guardian review, and it seems a bit odd to bring up a different publications review first off but I will anyway because they started with a line which was this isn't a Woody Allen masterpiece but it is a triumph they wanted to draw a a line between those two words and I think we need to let time pass a bit before we can dish out words like masterpiece and if somebody walks up and goes hey this movie that I've just watched one time it's a masterpiece good for that movie it's not quite fair I would say this is a stunning film I loved it I thought it was an extraordinary as we always say with Woody, return to form. And it is not an early funny one. It is not a middle funny one. It's not a dark, patchy one. It's not a scoop. It's certainly none of those things. It's a new beast. First of all, it's the first Woody movie I can think of that has a sort of kind of twist, which is of interest. Primarily a sad tale. This is a a socialite, Manhattanite, super rich lady who married young before she finished her degree and... She had lots of talent, lots of potential, but she decided when she was swept off her feet uh, by Alec Baldwin's character, this uh, 
shyster, as it turns out, this financial authority evader. Uh, Alec Baldwin, poor Alec Baldwin, plays a role which he was a kind of born to play. But it's a bit unfortunate where he's he's pitched as a womanizer who goes about, you know, playing around with young women. And you think, you know, Alec Baldwin gets asked by Woody Allen, do you want to, do you want to play this character? And he goes, can I ask Woody, what did you ask me? <laughs> he's kind of uh, he's kind of Jack Donnelly's yeah, evil twin, other. isn't he? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Definitely. Uh, so, yeah, this is Kate Blanchett. She's she's Jasmine. It's not a real name. I won't tell you what it actually is. But she has re reimagined herself as Jasmine. And unfortunately, she has an extremely violent mental breakdown. And she is crying and talking to herself in the street. And things are not going well for her. All her money is gone, but that isn't stopping her taking a first-class flight to San Francisco because, you know, come on, you spend money where you need to, uh, to see her adoptive sister, uh, played by Sally Hawkins, who is so sweet and kind and lovely. And it's really an analysis or an exploration of this character. It's another fantastic Woody Allen ensemble. You've got uh, Louis C.K., unfortunately he didn't win an Emmy, poor guy, but he's fantastic in this and... Bobby Cannavale, is how you pronounce his name. He's fantastic too. It's got all of that extra stuff and no one drops the ball. It's just a solid, strong, dramatic, moving, and at the same time, incredibly funny film. What I was most impressed by, there's one scene where, over the course of the film, Jasmine keeps repeating the story of how he, how she and uh, Alec Baldwin's character got together, and it was to the tune of Blue Moon, and he was very charming and all this. And she repeats this two or three times. And there is one time when she's she's saying it to Sally Hawkins' character's children in a diner. And she's delivering the story. And it cuts between seeing the kids be totally nonplussed, don't give any sort of fuck, and her just acting her heart out, like jumping from emotion to motion in an only a mentally unwell person can. And Woody's getting laughs. This, this woman is breaking up. Mm. She's losing it. And it cuts to the kids, laugh, goes back to the drama, cuts to the kids, laugh. It's just really clever very well balanced I thought this film had is the most pathos filled since I we were talking about it like maybe even Crimes and Misdemeanors it's been a long time since he's made a film this good I think and this sympathetic you know Kate Blanchett a lot of credit to her she says this has been the hardest role of her career um, to date and she puts everything into it and she makes this character somehow this brittle sort of Ming vase of like ruined self-esteem and Xanax into something that you can kind of almost relate to and sim- certainly sympathise with and care about. And that is spectacularly impressive achievement. And I'm sure it'll take it to the Oscars, obviously. Um, but, but Woody, you know, I think if you want a companion piece to this in his CV, I watched Interiors the other night and somebody recommended that. I think this has more more of the sort of comedy elements to it and the, the, the farcical comedy. And occasionally I felt that they didn't necessarily sit tonally. There's a bit with Michael Stuhlberg who plays a rather lecherous dentist um, that she ends up working for. And just about gets away with just it. Just about, but it's I'd say that's the closest it comes to the tone which is, it's a tight wire act getting the tone of this film right. And, and he does it really brilliantly. Yeah, I think it's, it's also, I mean we should say it's her film. I mean it's a, a great ensemble around her. We haven't mentioned Peter Sarsgaard as well mm. as in there. Um, great, great ensemble but honestly she's absolutely this front and centre the entire time it, it rises or falls on, on her every breath and, and she, she absolutely takes it and you're right I mean she's a horrible character at times and yet you're still kind of in it with her yeah you have to be don't you otherwise the film just doesn't work I did feel uh, you'll know no? once you've watched it you'll see what I mean but, <laughs> but the ending is something which is so brave and enjoyable for its its ballsiness and I want more movies that end in the way that Blue Jasmine does I hate to be the, 
you know the fly in the ointment I hate <laughs> I thought it was a solid film, but I really am not feeling all this love. I really am not. It's essentially a, a, a remake of A Streetcar Named Desire, and it's not as good as A Streetcar Named Desire. You talk about uh, how challenging it was to find the character. All they had to do was look at Blanche Dubois in The Streetcar Named Desire. Well, I, she's she's I, several rungs higher up the social ladder than Blanche. I disagree yeah, with it's, that. I mean, it's, it's the same structure. I mean, you've got the sister, you've got the brother, you've got the displacement, you've got the mental anguish, you've got the thin veneer of... of, of, of of, of, you know, whatever, oh, politeness I, I, and acceptance, what have you. I mean, look, to be honest, I, I agree with the praise for Blanchett. I do. But I don't think she was particularly backed up by anything else in the film. And I think that that she's so far and away out there that I actually couldn't really treat it as anything other than an amazing performance in the Woody Allen universe. I, I thought visually it was flat. I thought... Um, I thought the <laughs> it's just little details that sometimes throw you out of a film. I thought the background acting was poor. I thought the um, soundtrack, the use of the use of music, was was you know. There's a scene where people are dancing at a party to so something which just sounds like something you you'd hear in a lift. Or uh, do you <laughs> know what I mean? It's not like and I just think these house. things keep no no no. It was it's people. Are, hey, you're all getting down, and I'm listening, saying no one listens to music like this. What the hell is going on here? And it, there were lots of things happening in it that kept throwing me out. I didn't think that Woody had a feel for San Francisco as a location. I I, I just uh, it, to me, just you know whatever. I to me it for all felt quite flat. Um, but I'm gonna give props to Sally Hawkins mm. oh yeah she's great who has the toughest job in this film mm, yeah. so so I saw your look Ali when I said she wasn't and I, and I bet that you, that you think you were thinking when I said she wasn't supported you were probably thinking I was leaving Sally Hawkins out but no I actually think she does deserve uh, props for for her performance in this mm. film I would disagree with virtually everything you've just said but I respect your you know mm. your opinions I think when it comes to using San Francisco as a location quite deliberately it doesn't do the Golden Gate Bridge and the Presidio and whatever mm. it doesn't do all of those things it which I think is bit. good I mean, it a little bit but you know it's it's good yeah, it's they're not all, midnight they're on, in Paris yeah. they're on Long Beach and they go over to Sausalito and that kind of thing yeah. there's, a, there's yeah. a little bit there but it, you know avoids the visual cliches well despite Dan <sighs> we gave this five stars so that is an absolute drop whatever you're doing and go and see Blue Jasmine uh, from Empire uh, next up can it possibly reach those heights Justin Timberlake and Gemma Arderton gamble everything to beat Ben Affleck's bad guy in Runner Runner what were our thoughts yes, on this yes it can <laughs> <laughs> next question come well, on come on no it really no it genuinely can't it, on any level um, this is to me felt like a lot like one of those kind of we've talked about there's been a few this year Broken City was another like a real 90s kind of join the dots sort of thriller which you look back at films like The, Th the Firm and you think actually that's a really good you know well, well made film that's pretty gripping and it's a similar sort of um, premise here where Justin Timberlake plays the sort of Tom Cruise character in the sense that he's He's introduced to this world of wealth and power where violence is, you know, currency and, and, uh, and Ben Affleck and a bit of a, you know, bit of a kind of step retrograde bit of probably casting on his behalf um, mm -hmm. plays a an online gambling um, kind of 
Magnet. Magnet. Yes. It's the only word. Magnet. <laughs> Tycoon.net. Yeah. Um, yeah, in a kind of offshore... Offshore, uh, he's offshore. A secret, he's like... well offshore. He's well <laughs> offshore. offshore. This guy is so proper offshore. But yeah, you know, Justin Timberlake, he's, he's, a, he's a poker fiend, isn't he? He is a, he's a poker fiend. I mean, the title runner runner is a, is a poker term, and it's the card that, that completes, you know, a great hand. Ah, yeah. I did not know that. Well, it's, it's more precise go. than that. It's if you, ha- after the flop, so the three cards, playing Texas Hold'em, three cards are down, and your card's in your hand, you could get the winning hand, but you need two specific cards to come down on both the turn and the river if you win off those two wow. cards that's called a runner runner what's he a river to- he totally knows his stuff the turn is the fourth card and the river is the final card so, the fifth. so you're obviously a poker expert so is Affleck so I guess he knows this you know he knows this world presumably that's what drew him to the script I guess it's written by the rounders guys isn't it Does everyone remember rounders I'm a big fan of Give the mien his mien here. John Malkovich having Compare his way out of Ham College. Uh, it's oh, I want an Oreo now. So yeah, you can see how you know he could have been drawn to a script like this. It strikes me, and I haven't seen this. It strikes me as one of those films where you have the three floaty heads on the side of the bus, and you've got Justin Timberlake, you've got um, Ben Affleck, and you've got Gemma Arterton. And I have a sneaking suspicion that Gemma Arterton is entirely underserved in this film, and so you'd be you'd a be salad dressing all over the right. rocket. <laughs> you'd be right. You'd be right. Let's just call it Broken Island and leave it at that. <laughs> We gave it two stars. Um, our reviewer has described it as the devil's advocate of online gambling, a film that was literally begging to be made, and it's been made, and here it is. And You know, it's got nice people. We like them. Anthony Mackie, obviously, as well, as plays the, the Fed on the case, breaking down this criminal enterprise that Affleck has constructed uh, before he heads off and does Batman stuff. So two stars, really. So it's basically the Falcon versus Batman. I hadn't thought of that. It's so true. So oh, true. God. They can both fly but can't fly. So there is, there's more to talk about here. So that was a two-star film. Let's okay. finish up, um, in terms of long reviews anyway, with Prisoners, yeah. which uh, Hugh Jackman and Terence Howard's daughters are kidnapped and Jake Gyllenhaal's detective has to pursue leads. But hmm. Jackman goes vigilante and he kidnaps the prime suspect, Paul Dano, presumably because he's Paul Dano, he, he's prime suspect. I mean, look at him. Um, in an effort to find out where his daughter is, it gets murkier yet in Denis Villeneuve's drama. So, what did we think about this? I can tell you what I thought. I reviewed it. You did? Yes. Tell me more. I I actually, I I like this. I like this. It's very solid. It's very miserable, though. It's very grey. It's like slate-coloured skies all the way through and nobody's happy. But we are talking about abducted children here. But... Um, yes, you know. which does tend to lead to unhappiness. Yeah. But I, I mean, I think it's very interesting. It's a good kind of war on terror era allegory film because uh, the Jackman character, and it is the dourest we've ever seen him, yeah. I think. He's a good Christian and he's a survivalist. You know, he's the kind of guy who keeps bags of lime in his basement with gas masks and stuff. And he's a very kind of prepare for the worst kind of guy and, and you can't trust anyone else to do anything for you. You've got to do it yourself, the rugged individual. And obviously he's been wronged. He thinks that the authorities aren't dealing with this properly. So there's a prime suspect who mm-hmm. was played by Paul Dano, once again playing a kind of, you know, querulous freak. And uh, yeah, he, he basically, and this isn't a spoiler, he captures him and he throws him in his own DIY dungeon and tortures the crap out of this guy because he's absolutely convinced he knows where his daughter and his best friend's daughter are kept. And there's also, he's kind of, you know, that's kind of the you could say disproportionate response or you could argue proportionate response you know that 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 kind of debate is is in there so it's kind of working on these levels but i think my favorite thing about it um although i would say it's 
at the end of the day, it is a very standard thriller. You kind of, if you know this genre, you won't be that surprised by what happens. And it does fall back on cliche a bit as well. There's things, you know, okay. But I think the most impressive thing for me was, was Jake Gyllenhaal and his character. And we talked earlier about, you know, subplots that, that, that weren't that weren't really explored. I like the fact that he's a character who's not really explored. There's a mystery to this guy. I like the fact that he wears tightly buttoned up shirts, but he doesn't wear a tie. Yeah. It's like, what's missing here? There's something missing with this guy. He's got these weird tattoos that are never explained. He, he has a- angelic a symbols on his fingers yeah. and, a, and a cross on his, on yeah. his hand. Yeah. So and I, I really I was really intrigued. And I'd actually like to see another film with him in it in a weird, not really a sequel kind of way. Yeah, really intriguing guy. I mean, I, I, I kind of, I'm largely with you in this. I think I'm, if anything, a little bit more positive. I mean, I think, I think, I think people are actually. Yeah, I think maybe Roger, I got too hung Roger up Deacon, on the I mean, Roger Deakins stuff. is the cinematographer. So while everything is grey, it's beautifully grey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, which is worth mentioning. And and I think it's a, it really, it, I mean, it very much obviously lives in the grey areas. I mean, you know, Jackman's whole whole character is is just torn between good and evil if you like and there's I think there's a religious thing going on in both their characters as well mm. as, as the obvious political allegory. Mm. Now I think what's interesting to me is how similar the two guys are in many yeah. ways. They're both, they've both got this well of anger underneath mm. that they're both trying to stay on top of. I mean there's mm. a huge amount of anger. They're both very much into control. I mean you know uh, Loki, Hall's character has never failed to solve a case. Mm. Jackman's a guy who's prepared for everything and yet here we are and it's something that's out of both their control. And they've got all of the this similar and, and again the, the religious element kind of unites the two as well they've got all this similarity and and yet they find themselves completely at loggerheads and I think yeah. that's what, where the interest I, I is I think the character work in it is, is far better I think than the actual crime plot yeah, but I think maybe I, maybe I got too hung up on it. I don't know. I have, I've, I, you know, I haven't returned to it, so maybe it would be one of my films that I've, I upgrade my opinion on a return. But uh, we shall see. Fair enough. That got three stars, but it I think did. it's quite a positive. It's a strong three. three. Yeah. I call it strong three. Yeah, fair enough, and that is a recommendation. Okay, and uh, that's pretty much it for this week in terms of in-depth reviews. I should also give a quick mention. Um, Austin Land is out this week, which is a sort of story of a girl who goes on an immersive Jane Austen holiday, and uh, that's played by Kerry Russell, and she has to choose between. Jane J.J. Fields, Mr. Nobly, any relation to Mr. Darcy is entirely coincidental, um, and Brett McKenzie's lovable stable hand, Martin. Oh, I wonder who she goes for. Who indeed, I'm not going to tell you, I'm not going to spoil it. Uh, there's also Kristen Wiig and Girl Most Likely, that sadly only got two stars, so it's not quite living up to the bridesmaid's reputation. And then there's also The Wicker Man, the final cut. So that is the totally definitive, we're told, hmm. final, no more doubt about it, Everything is now in it. Version of the Wicker Man with director Robin Hardy revisiting his masterpiece again and and just bringing everything he wanted to into it. Uh, that got four stars from us. So if you're a fan, you should definitely check that one out. And that's it for this week's Empire podcast. Chris is going to be off for a couple of weeks on holiday, but next week we ha- are joined by a, a Celtic double bill. We have Saoirse Ronan who's coming in to talk about how I live now. And James McAvoy, star of Filth, will also be dropping by, but hopefully leaving any pigs at home. Um, until then, it's goodbye from Dan. Remember the sun, Will. Goodbye from Phil. What? <laughs> and goodbye from Ali. Bye. And goodbye from me. Uh, I'll be off envying Chris, who's sitting on the beach earning 20%. <laughs> <laughs>